How is your world different because God became a man? Gary Machuda is next. Hello and welcome to Focus, the Catholic Answers podcast for living, understanding, and defending your Catholic faith. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. And Gary Machuda joins us this time. He has a brand new and wonderful book, Revolt Against Reality, Fighting the Foes of Sanity and Truth from the Serpent to the State. It's like a little you are here arrow for you, helps situate you in history and give you an understanding of how we got to where we are now. One of the things that Gary is really good at is a non-defensive kind of apologetic. Sometimes maybe we apologists and those engaged in apologetics focus too much on defending the church against the deceptions and confusions that the world has about what the church is. But what about just presenting the reasons for the hope that is within us? When we look at the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ and then what happened in the centuries following, we get a really powerful sense of how what happened at the incarnation kind of returned the world to its senses after the fall. Here's what Gary had to say about that. The great Gary Machuda, thanks for being with us. Well, it's great to be with you, the great Cy Keller. <laughs> we, we never <laughs> let each other down with that. Um, a great uh, new book that you have, Revolt Against Reality. We've spoken about it before, Fighting the Foes of Sanity and Truth from the Serpent to the State. Uh, just came out last year, Catholic Answers Press. And uh, they took a, a chapter of it and, and uh, made an article of it on the Catholic Answers online magazine. And then I was like, I said, you know what? This would be just a great thing to talk about. And let me tell you why, Gary. I think there's the apologetic for the Christian faith that is uh, responding to all the modern nonsense or, and sometimes sense, you know, so I don't want to just, you know, be mean, but all the modern challenges to Christianity. But there's a more basic fundamental apologetic for Christianity, which is look at what it did to transform the world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, you can learn things about the cause through its effects. Yeah. And so just by looking at how uh, the incarnation and Christianity just revolutionized the pagan world points to a cause that, quite frankly, <laughs> has to be enormous, right? Something supernatural happened in the first century to bring about this uh, radical uh, change in society. Right, right. So much so that I find, Gary, and I wonder if, if you find this too, often I find that modern uh, apologists for the modern world will uh, take certain things like um, the idea of individual rights and they'll say, well, this was invented by modern people like John Locke or something. When in fact, if you look at the record, these are things that come from the very first centuries of the Christian faith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Not only rights, but just personhood. Yeah, you know. Okay. Yeah. Well. Yeah. yeah, yeah mean, the the know, fact that I'm a person. Fact, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, in the ancient uh, Roman world, uh, women and children were basically properties of the man, and uh, women only had value in insofar as their father, you know, who he was, and and her right. husband when they got married. So, a widow basically loses her identity, you know, because it was all drawn from the man, and of course, children. Children are the property of the man. There, there was an institution where the father, after the child's born, would examine the child to see if it's fit. And if it wasn't for whatever reason, he, he would give the thumbs down and the child would be 
exposed to beast or killed, strangled. Right. And uh, yeah. And, you know, with my book, uh, Revolt Against Reality, you follow that string through history. And today we have the, uh, the same thing, but opposite. Right. Because now. OK. It's yeah. The mother who decides whether or not her child's fit to to live or not. Wow, Gary. Yeah, that's so. Uh, that's exactly right. So yeah. I do feel, however, that we modern people uh, maybe are a little bit like the fish who doesn't know that he's in water. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. so pervasive everywhere that we don't understand that it was the incarnation of God in Christ that changed the world to make it like this. This is not its natural state. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're standing on the, the top of Mount Everest looking down. Yeah. And what's funny, Sai, is you will get atheists today who will take that perspective and then castigate like the Old Testament, how primitive it was and how could God be so barbaric when they they totally don't realize that they're standing upon 2000 years of Christian development and Jewish development on top of that. Right. So, right. It, you know, it, it's really funny. So, uh, I mean, one of the ways to kind of grasp this, and this is what you do in, in the fifth chapter of the book, Revolt Against Reality, the chapter is called The Incarnation Transforms the Ancient World, is you actually just do a before and after in, in a, a, on a series of things. But you start this way, and I want you to justify this um, uh, sentence, which is a very powerful sentence, but uh, I wonder how many people in the modern world would accept it. Uh, you wrote this to start the chapter. The incarnation is the epicenter of a transformative explosion that swept through the cold and barbaric ancient world, spawning new revolutions of thought and practice that lifted humanity to new heights. Can you back that up? Yeah. <laughs> Just look at today. Uh, you know, I, I would refer the, the watcher to uh, Michael Acalina has written several books on the subject of, uh, you know, how Christianity has changed and dynamized the pagan world. Uh, and it, really, if you do a before after uh, comparison, there really is no difference. I mean, the old world was dark, cold, barren. Um, people, they believed in fate. They believe that there was eternal cycles. So human life was meaningless. Uh, you didn't have free will. So if someone's poor, um, that they're fated to be poor and you can't change your lot because eons for now, you'll be poor again. And so, you know, if you're walking down the street and you see a poor person, you step over them, right? Yeah. <laughs> you don't want anything to do with them unless you want to engrandize yourself and show how magnanimous you are that you would actually give them money. But by and large, the, the pagan world kind of rolled their eyes at who would want to care for the poor or the indigent or, or somebody that's that's ill, you know? Right. And I mean, just look at today. It's uh, complete transformation where if we saw somebody like that, we would say, wow, that's really cold and inhumane right. you know, not to care for somebody who's, who's indigent. So, I mean, that's just one tiny little aspect right. of right. all sorts of things that changed. Yeah, it seems to me that like it, we're, it, we're retransported through time to live as a citizen of the Roman Empire. We would actually find it shocking. And, yeah. and uh, not because it wouldn't have its delights and, it, you know, it's really impressive in, in so many ways and even good in so many ways. But the, just the underlying assumptions of that society are so different from ours, we would, it would be like being on another planet. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and that's why, you know, Christ introduces something new into the world. And I always think of that passage, uh, I think it's in James, where he says that he gave gifts to men. Yeah. And you have to ask yourself, well, what gifts did Jesus give us? I mean, of course, there's the spiritual gifts and things like that. But, you know, I think part of the gifts he gives us is just by the sheer brilliance of the incarnation spawns all these intellectual revolutions that we we come up with, you know, caring for the poor. And ultimately that evolves into the hospital system. There weren't hospitals in the ancient world. There was like repair shops for slaves yeah. where they just get them ready to go back into the field. Uh, there wasn't care for the poor. Uh, in fact, in my book, uh, I talk about uh, Julian the Apostate, who actually wanted to revive paganism by providing government subsidies to pagan temples to pay them to care for the poor. Yeah, uh, that's how foreign you know this uh, revolution is. And then there's also that Christ incarnation flattens out time because the incarnation is unrepeatable. And so when you flatten out time, then that means that our choices do have eternal consequences, that yeah. there is meaning for life, where if you think everything is faded, uh, you have a kind of nihilistic fatalism that, you know, ultimately you, you live, you get whatever you can, and you die, and that's and, about it. And that's that. Uh, I, I want to do some of these in order of the, the, the kind of signs of the the revolution that follows from the incarnation, uh, actually series of revolutions. But one of them I want to just take out of order uh, real quickly is that there really isn't such a thing as childhood as we understand it before the incarnation of Christ. And it's it's so strange to think about that because Christ has actually very few interactions with children. It's not like he's going around as a child advocate. But it seems to me, Gary, and I just want to throw this out at you, that because the early Christian people took him so seriously as God, even small gestures from him could result in totally transformative uh, movements out into the world. What do you make of that thesis? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Once he becomes man, then his divinity is manifested through his humanity. Yeah. And of course, we think of miracles, but like you said, everything he did is revelatory. And that, I think, refocuses our attention, not by looking for God interiorly, yeah. by you know self-examination, but looking for God exteriorly. Remember, um, uh, in Matthew 25, the great judgment scene, we will be judged whether we go to heaven or hell based on how we, whether we cared for someone, you know, we fed the, the hungry, we clothed the naked. And he says, to each of these, you do it to me. So, uh, you know, Judaism had a, a very rich and still has a rich understanding of almsgiving and caring for the poor. Right. But in Christianity, it becomes a salvation issue where, you know, caring for the poor is another way to worship God, right? Because uh, th- we see that person as our brother and yeah. sister. And that upends all sorts of things, and I, I point that out in, in that chapter as well, like slavery, yeah. for example. All right, well, um, let's talk about slavery then. I mean, uh, here's, what, here's what people will say. Well, you read the New Testament, nobody abolishes slavery there. I mean, St. Paul, the, the most prolific writer of the New Testament, he doesn't abolish slavery. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't, because it was so weaved within the ancient world, I think it, it would be ridiculous you know, to to try to exclude it. It would last for about 10 minutes, and then the world would snap back to the way it was. 
instead, what this revolution does is it upends it, Sai, because uh, if a slave becomes baptized, you know, if you have a Christian slave owner and a slave becomes baptized, then they have the God-given right to all the sacraments, including ordination. Now, think about this. You own a slave. Your slave is a priest. So you, you go to the slave to have your babies baptized. You go to the slave to have your sins forgiven. You right. know, it, it really does make it kind of oxymoronic that, you know, that uh, that you would have a priest as a slave, you know. And, yeah. uh, and it turns the whole system around where in the early church we have uh, a few popes that were former f- free slaves. Yeah. So you have the, you know, quite early. That's the church, right? Yeah. Former slaves. Yes. Okay. And and the church itself. Okay. So so slavery. It, you use the word upends. That that what happens to slavery in the Christian context is it stops having the meaning that it had before, and really it 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 disappears in within Christendom only to come back later. And it, that's another story of great evil within Christianity itself. Uh, and we're yeah. perfectly capable of doing evil. I don't think you or I would deny that, that Christians are perfectly capable. But the, the Christian revolution, um, by the, you know, within a few hundred years, slavery doesn't mean what it meant, and it's really virtually on its way out. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It becomes unthinkable, you know? Yeah. And, and again, you know, then hundreds or centuries later, you know, then we could look back and say, well, why didn't they just abolish it right away? But yeah. like I pointed out in my book, uh, that's a total misunderstanding of human nature. Yeah. We're not robots or computers. You can't give us a program and we change automatically. It takes time and baby steps and practice and virtue to transform. And if you try to do a shortcut, it doesn't last very long. Well, oh, here's the other, here's another thing. And I'll, I'll, I'll pick on St. Paul again. But now in the modern context, people think St. Paul's ideas on marriage are backwards. I mean, often we, we yeah. as apologists, we end up having to defend what Paul meant by things that he said about wives and husbands. But the things that came out of Christianity regarding marriage, what actually happened was not the degradation of women and children. It was just the opposite, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it it, it's, it totally transforms everything. So it's a flesh and one flesh and blood relationship like Adam and Eve had at the beginning. And it also reflects the relationship of Christ and the church. And that's another radical um, revolution of thought, that Christ's church isn't like just community of believers disconnected from him, but we're members of his body. So we're connected to him as members to a head. And so in marriage, you have a sacramental uh, icon of that unity of Christ with his church, one flesh union. And so that ennobles both, you know, of course, men, but also women and offspring as well, that uh, we look at each other as equals, as one flesh, you know, unity, and we care for one another like we would care for Christ. And uh, again, very transformative. So was it, was it, um, how unusual was it uh, for the Christian um, uh, commandment from the Apostle Paul, uh, husbands love your wives. What, how does that relate to the way husbands were thought of before St. Paul? Yeah, actually, I have a quote from Mike Lacalina on that point, because he, he says that the pagans would basically laugh and think you're a fool 
Yeah. To love yeah. your wife. You yeah, know? they used to do plays like comic plays about men who loved women. Like you're just yeah. such an idiot if you do that. Right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, but like I said, when you take on the, the Christian worldview, all that changes. And to love your wife is to love yourself and to lay down your life for your beloved. All of that would be ridiculous and paganized. Well, um, but the, the Romans did have philanthropy. And philanthropy is a good thing. So what was the Christian contribution there? Yeah, well, uh, Christianity changes philanthropy into charity. And that's a huge difference. So we already touched on a little bit that it becomes a salvation issue for Christians. And so later on, like I said, when there was an attempt to revive paganism through uh, the power of government, it fails because it was DOA. Because the pagans had no notion of why you would want to care for the poor or feed the poor. Uh, you know, they're fated that way. Uh, leave them alone. But for Christians, that was a mandate from Christ because we're going to be judged on how we treat our, you know, the, the least of our brethren. And so uh, for Christianity, it just blooms. And then later on in history, uh, we collect into monasteries and we use the, the economic power of scale to raise charity to levels unheard of. And like I said, then that from that comes hospitals, from that comes uh, all sorts of care for the poor and resources. Yeah. And ultimately, I mean, it, it literally changes everything. But within the pagan worldview, it was, it was absurd. It was totally absurd. What about the modern view? Pretty much universally, at least um, the hat is tipped to this idea, whether people really, uh, or especially politicians always believe it, I don't know, but that uh, government exists for the good of the people, of the people governed. Uh, that uh, what would the ancient Romans have thought of this and, and how did the, the incarnation change the view of government? Yeah, uh, well, I think uh, the pagans would look at government kind of like how the gods governed them. So as a, a deliberative body, that uh, used the people however the way they saw fit. So uh, they didn't look at their citizens pretty much as all having the same rights. And it depends on where you're looking in different societies as well. Uh, with Christ, Christ is the suffering servant, right? He take the lowest place. And when that becomes part of Christian government, at least theoretically, Okay, yeah. because it, it seems like well, in practice, that was a long haul to get that in right. practice. Maybe yeah. it never actually did. But, you know, the idea is that government is the servant of the people, that it's there to support the people, and that the, the church itself, it was a capping, author, it was a capping uh, element that capped the authority of the state. So the state couldn't do whatever it wanted with its citizens. Uh, rulers had to abide by a higher law. And yeah. so, and then, you know, again, you throw, pull that thread through history and you find when the atheistic states come on, what happens? Large portions of their population are deliberately executed yeah. because they don't fit in with the program. Right. And, and again, this seems like the one where moderns want to take credit for it, but you think of something like the Magna Carta which is so deep in Christendom. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's not even a thought of a modern world at, at the time of the Magna Carta. This is not something that would have been possible in ancient Rome or ancient anywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, 
And yeah, it's it's hard to explain to somebody how it isn't like it just popped out of thin air. Yeah. Right. right. There has to be a sufficient cause, a reason for the Magna Carta and all that stuff. And the reason is ultimately Christianity and ultimately the incarnation. Yeah. And then, you know, you talk about the kings, how long it takes, but you do think of a, a saintly king like Louis IX of France. And this is also not a thing that would have been possible in the ancient world. And Louis the Ninth is not a perfect man or anything like that. But a saint is not a perfect person. A saint is a holy uh, person. But this holy kingship uh, that was possible in the Middle Ages, not often realized, really is transformative. To think of the king as a servant, not just as you know a despot. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, and and the reason it took so long is the temptation. It is so tempting when you're in authority to exercise. You don't want limits, right? Yeah. So there's always that tension between the secular governors and uh, the church. And, uh, and there was a while where uh, it got so mixed up that uh, many <laughs> church people were acting like temporal rulers. Right, right. But, uh, but well, ultimately, Christianity does kind of get the, um, the, the um, what do I want to say, Maybe not a victory, but does get the upper hand in that whole battle, at least through um, um, the um, investiture uh, issues and things like that. Right, right. So the 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 it just permeates out through time. And the yeah. and let me ask you this before I'm going to get you to the last paragraph of of your uh, chapter five, which is also an article that people can read at Catholic.com. Um, but uh, I wonder. How much do you think that th there's a way in which that th the stories that we have of Christ in the Scripture and what Christ said, that which is preserved in the Scripture, uh, is always there kind of as a corrective as Christian society goes down through the ages. But then there's this other thing, too, which is that Christ is actually present in the sacraments. And I know this is off a little bit off of where you, you um, went in this article, but I just wonder about your sense of... You know, this period of Christendom, for example, from say about 500 to about 1500, um, where so many advances are made, as you, you've already mentioned some of them, but you didn't even mention things like the university. I mean, there's you yeah, could go on right. and on and on with the with the social improvements. You know, like voting. Uh, you know, for leaders that that's a medieval yeah. uh, achievement. Um, uh, so, uh, how much of that do you think is just the fact that Scripture there gives us this standard of Christ? And people keep referring back to it. And how much of it do you think is that fact that the sacraments actually change the souls of human beings so that they are empowered to live in ways that they were not before the sacraments? Yeah, that, well, that's a great question. I, I think it's not either or. It really is both and. Yeah. Um, that, you know, it's that collective memory of the church as the body of Christ yeah. that, you know, imposes this view, this heavenly view on the world in a very realistic view, too, of the world. But it's also you need grace to live virtuous and you yeah. need grace to convert the world. And so it's also part of the mission of the church. So I think it really goes hand in hand. It's all part of the body of Christ, both, you know, yeah. re in that remembrance and sacred tradition in scripture and also through that dynamic of grace and conversion. Uh, it's funny that you use the word realistic because that is one of the words that I feel like you. It's in this last paragraph. I'm just going to read a sentence for, for you and ask you to defend this sentence uh, for me. Okay. Um, but I think that this would drive many modern 
kind of apologist for the you know the uniqueness and special reasonableness of the modern world uh insane that you use the word realistic to talk about the what christianity brought to the world was realism but here here's what you wrote in short the incarnation introduced a highly realistic view of the world as well as nature's goodness and intelligibility well Help me out with that, because I think many modern people would say you're insane, uh, Gary Machuda. <laughs> well, many and many people would. Yeah, you know, right. They yeah, do, right? Especially in my family. Yeah, perhaps uh, some professionals. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, all I would say is all you have to do is compare the worldviews of non-Christian, uh, non-Christian uh, religious entities or uh, religious uh, uh, communities or cultures before Christ and compare it to Christianity. Uh, there's so many things that just don't fit with reality. We mentioned one like the circular understanding of time. Uh, there's also this uh, interiority uh, aspect that people look inside themselves, and so the external world really isn't that important. Um, there's, there's all sorts of features like that, and Stanley Yaki and Dr. Stacy Transenkos has done some really nice work in comparing all these things. Because remember, it's only in the Christian West that you have science uh, being born as a self-sustaining enterprise. And that's not by accident. Yes. It's because every culture outside the Christian West uh, had an unrealistic view of time and space and the relationship of the gods to creation. That's another big thing, because right. if God is creation, you know, like pantheistic, then there's there's no rhyme or reason to it. God can change. God can move. Why study it, right? And if God is so disconnected from creation, again, it's just everything is chance and things are faded. But when you have a proper relation of God to his creation, then nature becomes intelligible. And there's an incentive to investigate nature in order to understand God's wisdom. And that's what Christianity, and it, with its Jewish roots, does. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it, uh, Gary. I love the book, uh, as you know, and uh, Revolt Against Reality. I mean, this is just chapter five. It goes on to describe uh, many of the ways that we have, I suppose in a certain way, it's a revolt against a revolution. That is the, uh, the revolution that was introduced uh, into the world by the coming of God in Jesus Christ is a revolution that's humanizing. And because it's realistic, as you said, and uh, now we're in revolt against that for whatever reason. Would that, that kind of sum up the premise of the book? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're at the end of a a whole stream of errors that yeah. has begun by trying to revolt from the incarnation. Yeah. Yeah, but if we if we if we return to the sense of um, allowing Christ to be our the sovereign of our of our lives, um, then the I suppose a, a revitalization or a, a re kind of invigoration of the original revolution that is uh, started by the incarnation is also possible. Yeah, absolutely. And and it will sustain and continue because it's based in reality. Inside, there's no other game than reality. So <laughs> it's the only game in town. Plus, you know, I think there's going to be remarkable, I mean, I don't think we're done unfolding, you know, these intellectual revolutions that yeah. are, are implicit in that, in the incarnation. So there's lots of great stuff to come if we can get back to where we ought to be, 
Right, and not blow each other up in the meantime. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm so happy yeah. to hear you say that. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a way of looking at Christianity that says, well, we're at the end, and then there's another way of saying it. Uh, it's coming back. It always, it, like its Lord, it uh, rises, and when it does, there's new things to come, not just a restoration of old things, but new things to come that God intends for us. He gave gifts, as uh, St. James said, and, and you said Please get the book, Revolt Against Reality. You won't be sorry uh, that you did. Connect those dots. That's what Gary does. Um, I, I th- again, uh, Gary Machuda, thanks very much. Oh, you're welcome. It's sad to think that only after we've lost many of them might we, as a society, as a world, come again to an appreciation of how beautiful the gifts of the incarnation are. But we have good reason to hope that we will return and maybe with our prayers. The time will be shortened where, until the world again embraces the incarnation of the Lord and begins to live in the light that he shed and continues to shed in the world. It is wonderful to have a person like Gary who can remind us about that original revolution in world affairs, the, the prime, primary and most beautiful revolution possible in human affairs, all brought about by the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. Keep praying, keep working for the kingdom and that appreciation of Jesus will come back to the world. Thanks, Gary. Uh, You should get his book, Revolt Against Reality. And if you want to communicate with us, you can always send us an email, focus at catholic.com. Maybe you have an idea for a future episode, focus at catholic.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by going to givecatholic.com. Maybe write a little note that this is for Catholic Answers Focus at givecatholic.com. If you're watching us on YouTube right now, would you subscribe and hit the little bell? That way you'll be notified when new episodes are available. We've got this new channel on YouTube and we'd really like to grow it. So your comments that maybe draw other people to the podcast are also very helpful and welcome. If you're listening on one of the podcast services and you like and subscribe, you too will be notified when new episodes are available. And there, if you'd like to give us that five-star review, maybe in a few nice words, you'll be helping us grow the podcast. That does it for us. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. We'll see you next time, God willing, right here on Catholic Answers Focus. Mm-hmm.